Hello, listeners, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I am Alex Sargent. I am Chris Holliday. You seemed unsure about that. I know, I paused when I didn't need to pause. For a minute I thought, am I Alex Sargent this week? No, no, I am still me. You are still Christopher yes. Holliday. It's probably the film of choice this week that's done this to you, Chris. Yes. Because it's a somewhat psychedelic experience that we're talking uh, about uh, in this film, which is uh, Ralph Bakshi's uh, Wizards, 1977 yes. high fantasy epic Wizards. Um, and our first Bakshi. Our first Bakshi, somebody who I think has been a touchstone through previous episodes at various points. Yeah, I can't believe we've, if we haven't mentioned Bakshi before. That would be strange. That we'll would go be back strange. and edit him and back in. Sure. The, just, sure. uh, kind of like Anakin, what's it, uh, Hayden Christensen him back into the previous um, Yeah, so we're going to reboot the archive yeah. uh, and retrospectively add in mentions to Bakshi. Um, you mentioned in your little description, actually, that Bakshi, or this is, a, this is Bakshi's epic, and I think that is a description... Well, the word epic suits the film particularly well. Uh, again, in a very early podcast, we did Yellow Submarine, and we talked, I remember quite vividly, about how the film gave me a headache. Yes. Um, similar. Similar. Mark II. I see. I see. Um, it's, uh, yes, I mean, Bakshi's somebody who um, I've known within my work on animation as this sort of independent, um, iconoclastic, um, I don't know, the, the anti-Disney, but it's very difficult to... To not find a yeah to find a history of animation that doesn't feature certainly U.S. animation I think he's um, probably best known for two things I yes. think he's probably best known for Fritz the Cat um, and his his first adaptation of the Lord of the Rings okay um, so uh, that should give you a taster of, of what Wizards is like really because it's somewhat in between those two worlds however Chris and there's yes. a, and this is a big however yes that classic phrase okay. that everyone says um, we actually have already chatted about wizards we have we have already talked about um talked about this film yes. so 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 here's what's going to happen yeah. this is another live episode where's it live where was it coming live from, at Alex? the cinema museum uh, as part of our monthly screening series yes um there will be one more of these this year we've, yeah. we've really enjoyed um our time there um but the last one we're going out with a bang we're going to do yellow submarine when we featured on this podcast before so you can get your tickets on the cinema museum website uh cinemamuseum.org.uk something like oh god we don't actually know. Chris is going to furiously Google. Yeah. Um, we should know this by now. Yes, uh, we should. Uh, cinemamuseum.org.uk. Right. You were Nailed right. Nailed it. Nailed Why it. So you can buy tickets you. there, but you can also find information on our website, fantasy-animation.org. So we're going to jump to the live event now, and yep. you'll hear us on stage just after the screening, have a chat about it, and talk with the audience. A really um, lively audience this time. Some people um, was just absolutely loved it and mm. were really going with it. Others had some issues, which I think were really important to raise, and I'm glad we got to talk through some of the more problematic aspects of Bakshi. But, yeah, um, and I, it seemed like, certainly coming across from the audiences, there was a sense of nostalgia. A lot of people hadn't seen it since it came out, or they remembered going to the cinema to see it, and this was an opportunity to sit in the cinema museum uh, and the kind of fabulous location of the museum itself uh, and and discuss what was Bakshi's first um, fantasy film. And there were plenty who, were, who had never seen it and sort of had heard about it um, yeah. and were interested. And I was one of them. I was you one were one of them, them, as I think I mentioned. Uh, right I, at the start. I take delight in pointing out your ignorance. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and we chatted about it, and um, here's the podcast, really. So um, sit back. I guess a very quick plot synopsis. Yes. Because we Good luck. This Good luck with this. Um, it's a it's a dystopic epic. It's set in thousands of years in the future. Fairies have come back. There's been a nuclear war. So it's and, kind of post-apocalyptic, and it's but, but it's also quite high fantasy in its right, sort right. of iconography. And basically, it's about a battle between two brothers. Um, Avatar and Black Wolf. Um, Avatar basically represents the force of magic, of mysticism, of um, nature. 
Um, you know, he's very Lord of the Ringsy. Um, well, sort of. He also has a cigar and sounds like um, Columbo. So. Um, Part part Gandalf, part Monopoly. Man. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, but 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 essentially that. And then we also have Black Wolf, who is a sort of dark wizard, um, plotting to overthrow the fairy kingdom, um, and uses, uh, amongst other things, Nazi propaganda, which he's found to um, sort of um, inspire his troops to go out and and commit these acts of violence. So it's a really, as you can perhaps tell from this description, odd but fascinating um, movie, which we, we delve in with our audience. Who, one um, thing, yeah, I suppose one thing to, to mention that Alex gave an introduction to the film when we actually screened it, uh, and for those of you who have uh, purchased or familiar with the book, Fantasy, Animation, um, Connections Between Media, Mediums and Genres, still available, um, the front cover of the book is from this film. So it's a very important film, I think, for us when we were thinking about this fantasy animation project uh, what what would what would the front cover of a potential book look like uh, and so I feel like that this image that we settled on finally the poster for Bakshi's um, Wizards is a good sort of encapsulation of of some of the things that I think we're interested in so we'll um, shut up here in now in the studio and we will jump to the live event um, and we will see you at the end We'll, um, we'll make a start um, uh, because the night is not young and uh, neither are we. And neither are we. Um, so uh, I'll let you all digest what we just saw there for a few minutes. It's quite a bamboozling film. Chris, don't worry, is in your boat in that Chris has, uh, until two hours ago, not seen this movie either, right. which has been a bone in contention in our working relationship. So now that riff is finally healed. Um, so we'll chat for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes or so, um, uh, give our two cents on the movie. Um, but we're looking forward to hearing what everyone has to say. If you've got a question or a comment or a thought, um, do share it and um, we'll be delighted to hear from you. So uh, Chris, would you like to... Uh, Start us off by giving us your first impressions on a movie that you hadn't seen until uh, two hours ago. Uh, sure. I mean, funny enough, this comes at the same time as I've just taught this week my undergraduate students uh, animation and propaganda, animation, politics and propaganda. Uh, and we've been looking at it in a particular way. We were looking at the Disney studio and we were looking at Golden Age Hollywood and, and how... Uh, animation was sort of wielded as a sort of political tool and its relationship to, to kind of propaganda. Whereas this film obviously opens up a new set of connections with uh, propaganda insofar as it part of its mixed media aesthetic that was particularly striking to me. Obviously, it's a mixed media aesthetic both within individual shots and, and across, sorry, in, within individual shots and then across se scenes and sequences. So you have this um, collage effect that seems to lend itself really well to the message that it's trying to articulate, I think, uh, and also the way in which it level, I mean, I don't know, we ha we've had previous conversations on our podcast about the relationship between live action and animation and what it means when a film combines the two uh, and what sort of spectatorial address that is inviting, whether or not we're supposed to see them as different or whether actually what we're supposed to do is think of them as occupying the same world and having perhaps the same sort of potency. So I got that a little bit from um, kind of watching the film. Uh, and also I think within Bakshi's, I'm uh, familiar with actually other Bakshi movies. And uh, this film seemed to 
from what you were describing in your introduction, seem to gesture back to Fritz the Cat. There are moments of, uh, of Fritzness, mm. if you like, um, but it also seemed to anticipate um, one of my favourite Bakshi films, American Pop, which is, again, this sort of mixed-media uh, collage that tells uh, its story through music, a particular story of an American family. So it seemed to open up questions about animation's relationship to politics and propaganda, and its kind of mis mixed-media aesthetic and the contribution of that to that, that sort of potency. Um, but also, I mean, and you're the Bakshi expert amongst us, that sort of the film's pivot point or a transitional film as his first fantasy film, but also one that gestures back as much as it looks for Forward. Um, so, from I mean, I guess from your perspective as the um, as the non Luddite in the room, if you like, uh, I, yeah, I guess I was interested in in your positioning of the film and where this comes within Bakshi's uh, back catalogue and what it sort of says about his relationship to fantasy. Because certainly from an animation studies perspective, which is largely where I'm coming from, Bakshi's sort of always positioned as the, uh, you know, he's the, he's the periphery to Disney's core or Disney's center. And he's always sort of marginalized and positioned as this anti-authoritarian, uh, independent animator versus the machine like Disney Studio. So I couldn't help reading the relationship in the film between technology and magic as sort of gesturing in some way, I don't know in what way, but in some way to that. Um, but this is, Bakshi's, I think you said, like the f his first venture into this kind of fantasy? Yeah, so um, so for those who don't know, Bakshi's was most prolific in the 1970s. And this is his fourth film in eight years, So um, and fourth film overall. He would go on to make another one this decade, um, and then two more in the early 80s. And then by about 1985, he made what, he's made one more feature film since. Um, so he had this sort of hotbed of productivity for about uh, 15 years, exploding onto the scene with a film, as I said in the introduction, called Fritz the Cat, but then making two other sort of socio-realist um, satires, uh, Heavy Traffic and Coonskin, um, a very controversial movie that um, has a lot of issues towards race um, and was banned at the time, in 75 it came out. And this was his sort of comeback. So he'd had this um, explosion with Fritz the Cat and then his career had sort of already hit the skits a few years later. and. Um, Within um, uh, attempts to understand his filmmaking, this is often positioned as the as the film that where he goes mainstream. Which, if anyone, well, we've all just seen the movie. Um, how little that makes sense as a narrative. I've got a quote here from um, a a animation historian called. Um, uh, Gianberto um, Benzani, who, who's like a godfather of animation history, he wrote, has written literally, well, not literally, but the Bible of animation yeah, yeah, studies. Anima he's written a, a, his sort of thing is, is animation in its global context. Yeah. And Bakshi's always a, a moment in American animation, I think. So this is a quote from him about Wizards, and he says that um, Wizards demonstrates little imagination in the handling of its themes and has a culture and a taste which panders to the passions and tastes of teenagers. So what he's saying there, this kind of quite clunky and, and a bit too simplistic. I mean, Benzanzi is an incredible animation scholar and, and we're indebted to him, but uh, quite a clunky narrative that basically says that uh, he made these interesting sort of early social satires, these kind of crazy adult cartoons, um, and then he went mainstream and he made Wizards and then he followed this up with his adaptation of Lord of the Rings, which, which he might be 
best known. But I don't think that works. I think actually this movie is as weird and subversive and countercultural as the movies that came before it. And it goes to uh, the form, the content, which we could talk about, the, the allegory he's trying to set up, the sort of uh, allusions to psychedelia, the allusions to hippie culture, um, the place of fantasy in the 1970s. But it also, just to relate back to Chris's point, relates to the, 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 the form, the way the animation is made. It's purposely messy. It's purposely lo-fi. It's purposely scattershot. Um, and this idea of, of the lack of polish, the lack of veneer, is actually quite a political statement in terms of animation in the 1970s because it's sticking two fingers up to the man, and the man in this case is Disney. Uh, Disney is polished factory, perfect animation that looks terrific and is technically accomplished. This is the opposite in every single way, and, and it kind of revels in that. Yeah, and I suppose the film, in that, with that Disney narrative, and, and again, it's very difficult when you're, uh, I think, talking about a figure like ba to, uh, a Bakshi to, to always have to relate it. You know, it's the proving the negative that he is not Disney. Uh, although it is, but, it, but he does that, actually. Like yeah. his, his entire career, he sort of follows himself around with headlines with stuff like, this is a film to make Donald Duck uh, Donald Duck gasp. Minnie Mouse would blush at Bakshi's uh, Fritz the Cat. This sort of followed him throughout his career. Yeah. And he was quite happy to make that comparison. So it's fair in, in that respect. Um, he's somebody that I always sort of turn to, again, sort of, I guess, thinking about animation's history. While Walt Disney, as we know, didn't invent animation, he went some way uh, to defining it, both visually, uh, yeah, stylistically, aesthetically, but also as a viable economic industry. And so you have this sort of machine-like um, process that Disney himself, uh, I guess, organized animation in a particular way, um, and then equally his, his historical relationship to technology. So Disney's relationship to color, Disney's relationship to sound, Disney's relationship to depth and dimension, and the, the advent of his, his multiplane camera, which um, we are still debating as to whether or not he stole the designs from another um, uh, filmmaker, um, Lottie Reiniger. So his relationship- Field on stage here in our last exactly. of our screenings. Um, and so his relationship to, or um, Disney's relationship to technology, I think, seem to, to be present or that or that that animation's connection to magic versus technology seems to be reflexively folded into the narrative. I mean, we, again, we've talked a lot about animated films that seem to be about animation. And so the idea of creation and animation and things like this. And so there's lots in the film, I think, about questions of autonomy and agency and puppet-like control. Um, but also there are some scenes, I mean, you say that it's messy and lo-fi and deliberately so. Um, but it, it is, in some ways, it does evoke the, the, the form and the look of, of a sort of a hyper-real Disney world. Because if you think about Disney and then Warner Brothers in the 30s, 40s, 50s, um, then the end of that golden age and the rise of different studios that are working in much more abstract um, geometric ways with scarcity of background and suggestion and, and, and a sort of prioritizing the modernity of form. So this, I'm thinking of mid-century America, um, United um, Production, um, so UPA, the, the uh, stu American studio. This is not like that. This is, in some scenes, it is very you know, luscious and, and Disney-esque uh, and what we would call kind of full animation. You know, there is depth and dimension and there is um, kind of detail within the scenes. That's not continuous and, you know, it doesn't go from shot to shot. And there is this jarring quality in the film that moves between something that is recognizably, and I mean, I'm loath to use the Disney aesthetic in this case, but something that is recognizably Disney balanced with a sort of rotoscoping you mentioned in the introduction, so the copying of live action, and in particular a film, the rotoscoping over footage. Um, it's a Sergio Eisenstein movie, Sergio Eisenstein, the great sort of silent Soviet filmmaker. Um, Alexander Nevsky, 
Um, there is some other footage that I that I that I don't know where it's from. I did at one point, but it's it's escaped me. But a lot of it is taken from from a Russian, um, yeah, uh, silent movie. And of course, live action. So it's it's use of live action footage and characters within the film that are watching this footage. So it's it's doing something very, you know. I I, I agree that its animation aesthetic in places is lo-fi, but actually in others it's very kind of lush, luscious. I think it, it's not it's not um, cohesive though. It's not no, exactly, um, exactly. It's not it's not all one thing um, and again that's, I think that feeds into the narrative in that the whole point of the narrative or at least some of the subtlety of the narrative is this idea of rejection of homogeny and, and celebration of different forms different cultures um, but, but therefore it seems it's, it's anti-authoritarian yeah. but then it yes but then it plays out visually what it then you know engages with narratively i.e. the question of well one cynicism but also a kind of hysteria and they talk at points about hysteria and obviously thematically you could connect that to obviously war the futility of war etc cetera, etc cetera. but visually there is a, a there is a stylistic hysteria to the way that it is moving quite um it, the only thing that's you know cohesive about it is its incoherency and there is that sort of movement between different styles and forms and aesthetics um, that I think, yeah, the mixed media certainly gives... Well, one, I think it gives animation the status of live action. It doesn't actually, in many cases, distinguish between the two. It's sort of, you know, animation could equally make a political point as live action, and that's what I've spent this week telling my students. Um, but also, I think it, that it sort of maps, maps onto the, the, a narrative of hysteria, something that plays out as much in its form as it does in its, in its content. The only other thing I'd like to, to talk about before we, we, we um, open it out is, is the cultural status of fantasy during this period. One of the reasons Bakshi's fantasy movies, quote-unquote, are often written off in his filmmaking careers is a misunderstanding from historians post the event of what fantasy means in the context of sort of mid-century America, 1960s, 1970s America uh, in particular. Um, this is an era in which it is not cool to like Dungeons and Dragons. Um, in fact, it's cool to like Dungeons and Dragons because it's not cool to like Dungeons and Dragons. And I think with the sort of rise of Comic-Con and the rise of sort of uh, mainstream geek culture, the geeks have taken over the world and all this kind of, you know, Big Bang Theory stuff um, that's happened in the last sort of 20 years, we forget um, what a marginal, um, subversive little genre fantasy, or at least this type of fantasy, high fantasy, alternative world, um, complex mythologies, all this sort of of stuff um, means to people. Um, this is an era in which fantasy is talked about as freaks and geeks. You know, it, it's conventions met around the corner. It's garage sales. It's 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 meeting everyone, meeting around your mates to play Dungeons and Dragons in your parents' basement because no one else will let you. Um, it's that kind of era. And this film did really well. It's, it was uh, Bakshi's um, second um, highest-grossing movie um, after uh, Fritz the Cat. Um, Lord of the Rings eventually did better. Um, um, overall, but theatrical release alone, um, this one um, is second. Um, but it didn't have a major release. It toured like colleges. You, uh, Bakshi literally went round college campuses doing Q and A's, sort of promoting the movie. And he sold them to select theatres. And he knew what his audience was. And his audience weren't um, well. Uh, the, the the sidious passions and tastes of teenagers. They were, you know, people. Um, they were they were college kids. They were uh, Vietnam uh, protesters. They were, you know, civil rights activists. Um, and and 
and the film spoke to them. Um, it was it was sort of countercultural. It was cool. It was radical. Um, it was weird. This is the era in which you know um, uh, Led Zeppelin are putting Lord of the Rings le- references in their in their films uh, in their in their songs and. Um, Jefferson Airplane are writing songs about Alice in Wonderland. You know, fantasy's cool because it's not cool. Um, and, and that's forgotten about. This isn't Disney. This is another kind of fantasy. Well, also that maps, again, quite nicely onto a narrative or the narrative of American animation because this film is 10 years, just over 10 years after Disney himself dies. And, and certainly within the chronology of Disney animation, these are, th- this, this, pe- this film is, is arriving at a period where and I think you've turned this in a, in, a, in a chapter, sort of Disney's Dark Ages, where it doesn't really know. It's sort of lost its way. This is the default and received narrative, whether or not that's actually true, because you know, it's one also equally perpetuated by the studio as a way of gearing up to a um, Little Mermaid-style renaissance. So there's something quite interesting about when this film is released, the animation itself, I guess, is, is moved a little bit towards television. So this is only five years as well before um, the television adaptation of Dungeons & Dragons, which you've recently done an episode on as well. Um, and so again, this, this, is a, this is a film that is perhaps, again, in, in the production yeah. that you've described and Bakshi's relationship, um, fantasy's, fantasy's relationship or cultural standing, there's something, again, interesting about how animation at this point isn't front and center the theater per se, it's moving into different spaces onto television uh, and, and touring around kind of college campuses as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, it's breaking away from a, a sort of fairy tale form of animation that Disney has popularized that's very much associated with, you know, the man. It's, it's, it's Hollywood isn't cool. Um, well, actually, that is my first note on the film itself, that the opening sequence, if you think of all the Disney movies that begin with the, the book mm-hmm. and the voiceover and, the, you know, the sense of storytelling and, and narration that is then, that, that then sort of sets up the, the um, fairy tale tradition. This, I think I've just put the words monstrous, yeah, monstrous reimagining of the storybook mm-hmm. because it is, it, it could be drawings from a storybook, but they're these sort of post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic images. Um, with this very sort of macabre voiceover. So immediately I think the film is maybe gesturing, and again, it is difficult to not, or to to always, or maybe it's wrong to always talk about Bakshi in terms of his relationship to Disney. But I think in this instance, the way that the film opens is a a sort of conscious way of, of thinking about how stories are told. Some behind-scenes trivia on that. The, the, the recurring na- um, voiceover that keeps coming back and we keep going back to these sort of still images um, was basically done at the last minute because they ran out of money. So as I said at the beginning, this was a very quick shoot. It was about um, ooh, somewhere between 9 and 11 months, which is insane for a, a feature animation. And, and, I, and I think he was only working with a team of somewhere of around sort of 10 to 20 animators. So really sort of not what you would normally do. And they literally ran out of money to film some key sequences so um, he stuck uh, a voiceover to explain the bits in and he was worried it wasn't going to make any sense. Um, I wonder why he worried that but he was worried that it wasn't going to make any sense so he put in a very clear um, cohesive voiceover at the beginning that really sets Tune up. his way out that bit. Right? Yeah 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 um, but it's really interesting again it adds to this mixed media sort of collage effect because it's another effect. Um, the, the graphics are done by, a, by an artist called Mike um, Plug who um, worked with Marvel at the time and, and there's a whole other sort of thing we could talk about in terms of this film is also riffing on sort of comic book culture because again fantasy is not cool it's read by comics comics are disdained they're not the multi-million pound franchises that we know them to be today stop talking
This feels like a pause, a preemptive pause to the episode. Yes. So uh, we've stopped talking for the moment about whatever. Well, we stopped we talking, talking then, and now yes. we're going to talk now about, about Twitter um, and about social media, I guess, more broadly. Yeah. Well, just the basic stuff as usual, everybody. Please do follow us on Twitter if you have Twitter, Fananim Research, F A N A N I M Research. Follow us on Facebook, Fantasy Animation. Um, you can find it um, in the groups in the. Are we a group or a or a or an a, event or I a, don't know. We're one of those. You'll find yeah. us. We've got a lovely um, logo. You, you'll see us. Um, you can. Um, what else can they do, Chris? They can visit the website. Uh, they can get in touch via the website um, uh, and kind of look at our back catalogue if yes. you like our greatest hits of yes. podcasts of blogs. Um, if you'd like to contribute to the blog, then please do um, get in contact via social media as we'd love to hear from you. Uh, tell what else you can do. You can subscribe to the podcast yes. on whatever format you're on. So if you're on um, uh, anything other than um, Apple Music, you simply subscribe and that will um, boost our rankings and, our, and on the algorithms will give us a helping hand and. That will mean more people will see us, so that would be really handy. And if you are on Apple uh, Podcasts, I believe it's called these days, um, give us a quick star rating and maybe an actual little review, just little a couple comment. of sentences. We've, 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 the star ratings are, are coming in, which is really great. We could do with another review just to freshen things up a little yeah. bit. Um, um, it, look, it looks like at the moment people have stopped listening, so that's not good. Yes. Uh, we want it to look like... Uh, Everyone is enjoying it, even if that is not the case. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm this close to writing a review of it myself, and we don't want that. <laughs> no, we don't want that. Um, if you do write a review yourself, what code word um, would you will you put in it so that people know it's got that desperate and we really need your help? Um, that's a good question. Uh, uh, Operation Bakshi. Operation Bakshi. Operation Bakshi. Operation Bakshi. If Chris has to resort to Operation Bakshi, we've got problems. So please um, go out there and do it yourself. Thanks. Right, we'll shut up and... Not shut up, but keep talking about other things. I think we could um, we yeah. could see what you guys think of it, though. That's our thoughts. Um, we have a roaming mic that's going around the room. If you can wait for the mic to reach you before you say your question, otherwise we'll have to make you repeat it um, for our listeners at home. So, have anyone got a question or, or a maybe comment? just their thoughts on the film? Or some thoughts on the film? Um, we'd love to have a conversation. Yeah, there's one at the back and then one at the front. We'll go to the back first. Thank you. And then these awkward silences we just cut out of the podcast. Yeah, so, so it's all it's all gravy. Days. Um, on? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I'd never seen it before, and I thought it was just incredible. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I don't really have a question. I just wanted to give an impression, really, that I think um, when you talk about mixed media, how he used mixed media, I think this, one of the things that really struck me was obviously the story was largely about the sort of conflict or collision between magic and technology, between sort of fantasy and science. And I kind of felt like the, the, the conflict between um, the artwork mm. and then suddenly just these images of Adolf Hitler, which when they came up were really quite shocking. Um, you know, there was this real collision there between different, different types of media, but also between um, different types of artwork as well, because, you know... Uh, the, the, the style of artwork was very, very different and sort of overlaid with each other in, in different parts of it, which I found fascinating. So there was this like constant collision of styles, which I really felt, while watching it, kind of kept me on my toes and kind of kept me sort of surprised all the time. Um, uh, and I also, the other thing I wanted to say was I just, I, I kept thinking all the way through it, was there a, some kind of political, philosophical point here about this idea of a projector um, projecting images from the Second World War 
that are just completely mesmerizing everybody and kind of entrancing people, like they're kind of, you know, captured by this spectacle um, that sort of takes over everyone's minds almost. And there's something very kind of politically metaphorical about that, I think. No, absolutely, and, and, and the way that you've, I think, described the way that the film uses it, it's not that, that it's mixed media, it's that the way that it uses it and the idea of projection. I mean, if you go back through film history, there are so many films like that, whether it's, you know, Shannon uh, Delu, whether it's Man with a Movie Camera, Battleship Potemkin, that are about sight and the assault on vision, essentially. Um, and I feel that this film sort of does that as well. Those, those sort of reflexive gestures to filmmaking, the power of images, um, the idea of kind of indoctrination. And, and, I, and again, I don't know whether that's saying something about... It is a collision between live action and animation. And as I said, we've talked previously about what that means in terms of an active spectatorship. Are you encouraged to view them as different, that live action tells the truth, photographic images tell the truth, and animation does the rest? Or are we asked in this film to sort of think of them on par or as equally equally as potent and powerful and uh, and have that ability to be loaded with with political content i guess there's something about the images where we have the animated characters watching yeah. the live action footage that's very powerful and it's and it's it's something about the jarring of this sort of comic book aesthetic with with the, 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 these images that were sort of engraven within our sort of cultural psyche of these sort of traumatic events, um, photographs, preserved uh, preservations of the past, and that the fact that these things are trying to place together, and particularly if you think about this film, is actually a, a dystopic fantasy. So it, it's, it is claiming in the narrative some sort of lineage between the images of photographs and the, the sort of cartoon images that we're seeing there. It's really striking, and it's like, um, you know, viewing the world through, through a strange lens. And, 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 and I, don't, I don't think I quite know what Bakshi is trying to say with it. I've listened to a few of his interviews, and, I've, and I've, there's actually a director's commentary on the Blu-ray that's really interesting. Um, most of it is him apologizing for various budgetary concerns, but, um, but he does try and sort of numerate on the themes. Um, and he sort of is trying to get at this sort of anti-authoritarian, anti-fascist, um, the power of art to provoke um, the imagination over, um, over the sort of uh, the authoritative and, and to in, inspire individual creativity. I think... I think there's a muddiness to the metaphor. I'm not quite sure quite what it's getting at. I don't think that's a problem. I think that can be a source of energy because I think this film's lack of decipherability is part of its pleasure. On, on the subject of the, of the sort of various clashing styles, you're quite right. And again, behind the scenes, what he would do is, is, is sort of basically hire different comic book artists he um, befriended to design different bits of the movie. So um, as I say, Mike Plug did a lot of the sort of fairy um, voiceover stuff, but the, uh, the scenes in Scorch... Um, the sort of the, the, the um, Black Wolf's Palace are done by a comic book artist called Ian Miller, who was famous for um, doing a lot of illustrations of H.P. Lovecraft, so they, those angular um, images you might have seen on there. And he also did a lot of D&D, um, &D, Dungeons and Dragons um, imagery as well. So not from the world of animation, from the world of sort of comic art and, and fantasy illustration. Um, and banging those things together creates this sort of, um, we use the phrase oil and water a lot on the podcast. You stir it and you stir it and you stir it and it never comes together, but it looks very beautiful as it sort of dances around the glass. Two absolutely um, excellent observations there. Yeah, I completely agree. It gives the film great energy. Um, I think we had a, a question or a comment on the front. 
Hi. Yeah, um, I loved it. I thought it was really nice to look at and stuff. I like drawing and illustration and everything. Uh, but I thought it was interesting how, because um, it started off really promising for me in terms of like political allegory and the, the mother, because uh, it sort of started off as like a, uh, like a matriarchy with this uh, queen fairy and she has these two twins and um, one's bad and one's good and, uh, the, and the good one like grieves her death and the bad one like doesn't give a shit and it's about this sort of relationship to the mother and also this stuff about um, technology versus nature. And the guy says that the only true technology is nature. And I kind of thought, yeah, man, he's on to like, you know, I was sort of thinking, yeah, nature is like, you know, mother nature is like the, f the f feminine and like patriarchy is this uh, sort of necrophilic death cult of technology. And um, there's, a, there's, a, and there's a however or a but coming though, I'm uh, sensing. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and then, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but both the twins, um, Avatar and the evil one, both end up with these sort of infantilized, pornified girlfriends. Mm -hmm. And um, you, kind of, you, you kind of hope that Avatar would end up with a, I, I don't know, the, the fairy woman, Eleanor. She was like a bit kick-ass, but basically she was just wearing that ridiculous porn bikini for the whole thing. <laughs> and um, I think it's a shame, because I think, but back, she was sort of on something. You could go on about how countercultural and ra radical it all is, and he hated the Nazis and everything. But I think it's massively let down by, you know, the the sort of uh, depictions of women in it, which I, I thought started off really prominent. I thought it started off possibly as like a sort of feminist thing, but it wasn't to be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, thank, no, thanks for raising it. I think it's, 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 I think I had written, will someone mention Eleanor in my uh, notes, question mark. Um, and yeah. Uh, well, I suppose this is, you know, I think at those moments, it, that's what I mean about its, its relationship to something like Fritz the Cat. And perhaps it's a gesture towards that kind of, you know, uh, Bakshi making sure he ticks the box of somebody who is known for quote-unquote adult animation. Adult animation, you can you know, define in lots and lots of ways. He is the adult animator. And so at those moments, yeah, absolutely, the, the decision to dress Eleanor or undress Eleanor in that particular way, for me, was, it was I was thinking, oh, okay, so here we go. Here we go, classic Bakshi. And actually, it was then the rest that was a bit new and a bit, a bit different. But I feel like you have thoughts on this. Yeah. Um, I describe Bakshi as a countercultural animator. I don't describe him as a um, uh, a progressive animator. No, I mean... Um, no, 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 and I'm not excusing it. I think you're exactly right. I think... But, but it's the fact that it was, like, so close to kind of... Um, that, like, actually, what he's saying about technology mm. and, uh, and um, nature being the only technology... Like, that is actually really quite radical. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, like, really getting... Uh, it could have, uh, I don't know, it, it could have been more in, I think, as a fantasy sort of narrative and everything with political, obviously uh, political undertones to it and everything. I think it could have been, 
it was almost like a lot more radical than it ended up being. Mm -hmm. Like he ended up being a bit of a Nazi with it, really, because <laughs> all the all the women in it are just porn stars. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, yeah. I do. I th I think that's that's kind of almost what's that's all, a trait. And all the bad around. women are, are old and haggard. The, uh, you know, you yeah. know when um, Ellen is all tied up and and the, the evil woman is. Is going kill her, kill her, yeah. and she's got saggy boobs, and she's sure. all, she's a kind of and and the whores in it are all kind of old, and it's like the bad women are ugly, and the yeah. good women are you know young and nubile. It's yeah, all, it's and just there's that, but there's that, there's that that's woman not with radical, green, that it? woman with green who's holding a baby. Yep. Where are the wise hags in it? Where are the wise hags like? It, this is a trait throughout his whole whole. So Fritz the cat. People think Fritz the cat is this like really cool, um, subversive, leftist. Um, film. It's not. It's about a cat who wants to have sex um, and basically tries anything to have sex with anything that moves. Um, he mocks the left, he mocks the right. Um, there are dealings in grotesque imagery. Um, we could talk about his depiction of race because it's <laughs> problematic. Um, there are scenes in um, Fritz the Cat where a bunch of uh, pigs who are identified as being Jewish um, in the movie and it's trying to make some sort of really crass humor out of that. Coonskin um, is a movie that got him into serious trouble um, and it's a movie that sort of is a sort of really twisted re-envisioning of Song in the South which is a movie um, with its whole other backstory but it's, gr it's definitely trading in racial stereotypes. Um, all of this is there. All of this is, is there and narcs and is difficult and doesn't help understand the movie. In fact, it helps energize the desire to keep kind of watching it because you think it might all click into gear one time and it doesn't because there's that scene in it and why on earth is Avatar basically Columbo? Um, you know, and, and what is all this about and where's the cigars coming from? And it, it's, it's, you know, he's counterculture in the sense that he's not doing what we think he should do for better and for worse. Um, and I, that's that's what I kind of find interesting about it. It's not it's not the stuff. It's it's the stuff I like and the stuff that I just can't wrap my head around. And you're absolutely right. It's it's it, he he loves. I, just thought, he, I, I thought Avatar would end up with a. I don't know. I thought I thought there'd be some more uh, sort of eco-feminist moral mm. to it all. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think that he's too much of an impish kind of filmmaker. I think the moment he senses that he should do something, he does the opposite. Um, for, again, for better or for worse. And he loves to deal with, um, with stereotypes, and he loves to deal with grotesque imagery. And Chris can talk more about this with, than I can, but, but, the, but the grotesque is such a um, difficult thing to play with because you can lampoon with the grotesque, but you can also um, be nasty um, and, and, and suppress with the grotesque, and, and I suspect he does both without knowing it at the same time, and neither. Yeah, I mean, that's the, again, that's the kind of knife edge that animation falls in terms of whether it's able to dilute versus whether it's able to exaggerate, and it's always, you know, and this, this goes back to animation's relationship to children, and, and oh, how do we think about the ideological loading of messages within cartoons? Well, it's fine because they're diluted because it's animation versus, no, 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 look at how animation is this veneer that has somehow covered or veiled these really insidious images, and rather than diluting looting it actually to draw it is to then commit to it and then to commit to it is to exaggerate it but it is interesting that, that the film is then bookended by these two very colorful luscious scenes of like nature almost as if he's trying to get away with like it's fine because i've tacked this bit on at the end where it's all colorful and there's we're back to kind of normality and that sort of machine age that takes up an hour and ten minutes of the film is sort of you know 
He's trying to forget, make us forget about it because of these, these bits at the end that are playing a bit more with nature or the return to nature. Maybe that's what I mean in terms of the conclusion that the film tries to play with that. Yes, and now we've returned to nature and this is all... Pride Rock is now colourful again. Uh, we have a question? Probably, yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much. So I haven't seen this since the early 80s uh, and it's been fantastic watching it again. Um, and some of the things that struck me then as a, as a kid as still strike me in, in slightly different ways. Um, one of them, this is my intro to the, the artwork of Ian Miller, uh, which has stuck with me since. His, his backdrops in this are, are amazing. And he goes on to become a Tolkien illustrator just as Ralph Bakshi goes on to, to direct uh, the Lord of the Rings animated film. Um, I, as a kid, I was obsessed with the character Peace uh, and the, the pathos of that character continues, I think, to really stand out in the film and I really enjoyed seeing that again. And the, the, the subversion of, a, of the sort of the titanic clash at the end where you're, you're, you know, you're expecting a big magic battle and, and, and Avatar just pulls a gun and shoots his brother and it just totally turns on its head how you know, a fantasy film or something should end with, with, with uh, you know, lots of magic and so on. Uh, and something I didn't pick up at the time as a kid is, is Mark Hamill was in, in, in the background there as, as one of the, uh, the, the voice actors. Um, uh, so that was, that was fun to see. what of. else he was doing in 1977. Yeah. <laughs> Can't think this is in his downtime. When, uh, yeah. but, uh, so, but thanks very much for, for, for screening this. It's, it's well, actually, I think that point about the, the fight at the end is I wonder whether that's, that's, that's the moment where you said, you know, that Bakshi's trying to do things or, or do things that we don't expect him to do. So it's as much... Um, a reflection on genre as much as it is anything else. But also, it feeds back into the, it, what seems to be the film's relationship to technology. Uh, anim you know, if the film is about technology versus magic, and animation is essentially both of those things. It's a technology that tries to pass itself off as magic in some ways. Um, and so actually, I wonder whether the, the gun is the is again is much like the images of, of um, Hitler or the the record, you know, the playing camera, the projection. It's the it's the danger of technology and the 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 threat of the machine. I don't know. It's it, and and in in that you could read a sort of anti Disney agenda, but I don't think it's as clear cut as that. I think it's more at that moment a play on genre for me anyway. Yeah, I'd agree, and it doesn't actually sort of make much thematic sense. I don't think because there's a whole sort of thing set up between. Um, you know, the, the, the forces of magic don't wield weapons and the, and, and the forces of, of technology do and they wield swords and all that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that sort of... It, I agree that it's kind of... It's, it's, it always surprises me. I always forget. Um, and this is sort of the chaos of the final battle. And I actually... What I do think is impressive is, um, is there's a sense of scale in that final battle that is not on screen. It's sort of in between the various sort of combinations of, of background footage, um, violence. The violence against fantasy imagery is quite interesting here. Yeah, there's something about seeing a fairy bleed that just doesn't seem to fit well. You know, it's, it's kind of, you know, when, when that, that in, where in the woods and the fairy gets sh um, uh, shot by peace, and it's quite disturbing, you know, because um, it's this bleeding of genres. Um, so yeah, but 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 again, um, we're talking all about this, um, you know, nice unification of chaotic form with sort of chaotic style. The next film, it's a year later, is Lord of the Rings, um, and in that film, he he starts using rotoscope in this movie. He he really uses it a lot in that, and and that film, he was very keen to not have fan to not have the animation be 
in any way more than a sort of realist illustration of the imagery. You think he, de- he described himself as, as wanting to be Rembrandt in Lord of the Rings, to, to, to sort of paint with the animation a scene that looks as realistic as possible. Um, so even in the space of a year, he completely abandons one style, moves on to another style. Um, yeah, he's a chaotic little, little critter. It's Bakshi. Um, he's, he's fun to follow on Twitter too, by the way. Um, he's what, sorry? He's fun to follow on Twitter as he well. Retweet, he is re- fun. He and and he knows event. tonight's is, go- is going does. on, so I will, um, I will share. We'll, we'll at him. We'll at him, as, as we do. Do we have any final... Cl- yeah. Great. Because it's next. Quick creative question. Sure. Did Bakshi um, ask Ian Miller to draw those images for the film, or did he actually borrow Ian Miller's pre-existing work? Because they're really creative opposites. Because yeah, Ian Miller's artwork, you, I mean, you look at that just generally, you mm. want to explore it and dive into it. It mm. has that effect regardless. That's the, that's the fantasy element yeah. of it. But, you know, he's literally doing what all kind of viewers of Ian Miller's work want to do. Mm. Or oh, that's why Ian Miller's so popular in the role-play scene as well because you want to get inside those drawings. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen anyone do that before. Yeah, no, I agree. And as I say, um, he's, riffing, he's riffing on a, st- on a form of fantasy that is, that, is, that is sort of, on one hand, it's the literariness of, of, of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, these sort of highbrow, well, these things that we now think of as highbrow novels, but, you know, uh, Tolkien was dismayed by the reception in the States of Lord of the Rings because it was picked up by, you know, juveniles and stoners, as far as he could see. You know, the Oxford Don did not want any part of the way it was being received in the States. Um, and it was being received alongside a sort of existing culture since the 30s and 40s of pulp magazines, comics, weird tales, uh, magazine of sci-fi and, and fantasy to see, um, you know, the Edgar um, Rice Burroughs, Tarzan, Conan the Barbarian, um, all these kind of stuff that was already in US society. And, and Bakshi's definitely, he, he associates himself as being that kind of fantasy fan. Um, and so all these references were, were, were within his world, certainly. So it's, it's nice to see it. I agree, it sort of captures a nice culture um, on screen through its sort of various clashing styles and visualizations. Any further uh, comments? Yeah, I think we have one final yeah question. Make this last one. Yeah, and then uh, we'll all uh, wrap up. So I was wondering how you guys feel about the inclusion of Eisenstein's work because I was wondering if you felt like Bakshi was trying to paint him in a positive or a negative light because Raul, you know, uh, Eisenstein was working for someone who was obviously on the on the far left. Um, I think most people would would agree that Stalin was an authoritarian. So I was wondering if you guys think that... Seems fair. That was... Um, that was an, uh, that painted his work and um, his films in a positive light or a negative light? Do you want me to... Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, well, I, hmm, what I think... Bakshi, Bakshi, when he talks about the use of rotoscope, he's, his narrative is very much... It's, it's a technical solution to a problem. He didn't have the funds to create these elaborate battle sequences, so he found the closest footage he was looking for and painted over it. So, so the original it, footage isn't of political intrigue. It's more the... the the image of certain... I'm looking for an image of this kind of battle. I'll find it in an Eisenstein movie and I'll use that. I think that narrative economy suits him very well. um, What does he do with rotoscope is a really interesting question. And I'm not quite sure animation historians and theorists have really, or sort of anyone, has really got to grips with what rotoscoping does. Does rotoscoping capture um, or does it embellish 
or does it subvert? I mean, I guess it can do all three of those things. Um, the way Bakshi talks about rotoscoping in his career, he tends to talk about it as a process of capturing. So I think um, there's a sense of honoring Eisenstein's work as a filmmaker. Um, and that, I suspect, has, le has less to do with the political allegiance between filmmaker and, and between Bakshi and Eisenstein as it is to do with sort of artistic uh, leniency. So, you know, um, bear in mind this is sort of uh, 60s, 70s, uh, you know, the new American cinema, um, Scors uh, Scorsese, people like that have come along, raised on European art house traditions, raised on things like Eisenstein. These are all part of the popular canon of the cinephile. So I think that is more of an expression of, of or, or, or a sort of uh, a gesture of uh, topping the hat of cinephile to cinephile than it is anything sort of overtly political, as much as sort of cinephilia is kind of political. Well, it is political. Um, so that's how he describes it, and that is my impression of it. I don't see Bakshi as having, um, is making any sort of uh, left-rightish statement with that, or, or that the footage is somehow condoning or celebrating the, the content of Eisenstein. We could even argue the opposite by actually taking it out of the scene out of yeah, context and, and repoliticizing it or repurposing it can yeah. almost destroy the, the original intent. Part of, the of that, I, I guess, because you talked about the lo-fi, but the sort of cut and paste aesthetic, I think, yeah, you're right. In terms of the, the timing of the film, um, seems to work within a broader culture of, of cinephilia in the way that it is combining, um, you know, gestures. You know, there are, I suppose there are, there are gestures to a Disney-style fairy tale as much as there are live-action 1920s, 1930s, Soviet cinema montage, the use of editing. I was also thinking about Riefenstahl as well, Lenny Riefenstahl's, you know, that, 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 kind of, that kind of political imagery that begins in the 30s, but then seems to recur in things like, you know, that uh, Lord of the Rings, The Lion King, Star Wars, all these sorts of, like, you know, certain oh. kinds of right-wing imagery that are, that are then perpetuated through or that kind of right-wing imaginary that is solidified in certain kinds of films. So it is part cinephilia. I think it's part of that cut-and-paste um, aesthetic. And yeah, I think the question about rotoscoping, whether it is capturing or whether it is manipulating or whether it's isolating because it cut-and-pastes and takes things out of their context to then repoliticize. I think it's... Uh, yeah, I, but I agree with you. I don't think it's, it's articulating a message either one way or the other around Eisenstein as a filmmaker. We have neither the time nor the patience for me to go on my probably hour rant about uh, the clear traces of Bakshi's legacy in Peter Jackson's uh, filmmaking, because it's writ large all over it, both from Wizards and from Lord of the Rings, so I'll just say that comment. Um, do you, Eisenstein, as a final, do you want to uh, do your, you, you love your Eisenstein? I do love my Eisenstein. My, my only, and I said this just before we, uh, we were going to talk about this, is Eisenstein obviously has an interesting relationship to animation anyway um, and actually it ties in quite nicely with cut and paste because um, Eisenstein wrote one of the most well one of the earliest if not the earliest formal appreciations of animation um, in the in the 40s um, he then died and his work was only discovered uh, in the 80s and it was translated and it was all notes he'd written notes about Disney animation on bits of paper and it was just scattered around um, and then it was brought together in a book called Eisenstein on Disney that I think I bought for like £1.50 online um, and it's just a collection of Eisenstein's notes on Disney um, he talks about something that he talks about this idea of, of plasmaticness that is embedded within the cartoon images in and of themselves so something that was happening in production rubber hosing characters with rubber hoses without joints um, he then takes up in reception 
perception and talks about plasmaticness. Um, he talks about animation's freedom from uh, a mechanized existence in the 40s. He talks about uh, the real world being graphed by the cent and the dollar and how animation provides a kind of a freedom or freedom from ossification, uh, a freedom from the once and forever given. So Eisenstein himself was very interested in, in Disney in particular um, and animation's ability to uh, articulate on screens. Actually, some of the things that fantasy would then take up, metamorphosis, and like transformation. Um, I think he, at one point, Eisenstein talks about Disney's ability to mock zoology by having animals that talk. Um, and so that's my little note on, on Disney. But it's a great book and very, very, very cheap. But it is, it is, again, it's kind of chaotic because it's just these notes on animation that are cut and put together in this collage book that reflect his interest in animation. So it's a nice little... A nice little link. And it's nice to know that a Soviet propagandist can love Mickey Mouse at the same time. Bingo. Um, I think that's it for tonight. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for staying and thank you very much for taking part in the Q&A. It's been really nice chatting to you all. Um, we have the Dark Crystal next month. If anyone fancies some Skeksis, Mystics, Puppets and uh, Fantasy Animation. So and then on Yeah, that's on Friday the 28th of February. Yes, the and then uh, our last Friday. one of the series will be in March where we'll be showing uh, Yellow Submarine. Come to Pepperland. All you need is love. Um, and yeah, and if you'd like to uh, hear either um, one of the earlier podcasts that we've done at the Cinema Museum um, on uh, the adventures of Prince Ahmed, that is online. Um, but do go back and listen to some of us chattering about. We chat to Oscar winners, we chat to academics, filmmakers, animators. And sometimes to each other. And sometimes to each other. So thank you. Thank you very much for coming. Hope you enjoyed the back sheet. Cheers. So uh, that was, and still is, Wizards. Yes, that was it our remains, It remains Wizards. Wizards. It'll always be my Wizard. Um, yeah, that was good fun. I, having not seen the film, I was really, and again, as somebody who's uh, found Bakshi at various points, um, whether it's uh, you know, class or research on something related to Hollywood animation, whether it's uh, a question of adult, his connections to adult animation, this was my first kind of dummy. I've seen a couple of Bakshis before, but this is my first engagement with his fantasy uh, canon, if mm -hmm. you like, his group of fantasy films. So uh, adult in a different way got me thinking a lot about uh, magic and, and technology as, as we discussed. So yeah, I still kind of don't know what to make of it. My headache is still here, but sure. that's a good thing. Sure, no, I know. I, I've seen it loads of times and I still don't know what to make of it. So as, as probably came across in, in the Q&A there. Um, if you, well, we'll almost certainly revisit Bakshi again at some I'd point. Love to, yeah, um, I'd love to. There's and, lots to say. There's lots more to say about that. Um, if you um, enjoyed uh, that podcast, there is one more live event um, you can come to at the end of March. Uh, Yellow Submarine uh, is the 27th of March. This is the 27th of 27th March. 27th of March. Um, buy tickets on the Cinema Museum website, cinemamuseum.org.uk, or you can just find it via our website, fantasy-animation.org. Um, is we, there anything else we have to say? I think that's us. No, I think that's us. Um, if you would like to uh, contribute to the, if you're a Bakshi fan, any yes. Bakshi fans out there, um, you listened to the podcast, you enjoyed the episode, or you disagreed with some of the things, or there are bits of his um, work that you'd like to shine a light on, then do get in touch via Twitter, uh, Facebook. You can visit us at the website fantasy-animation.org. Uh, pitch a post, pitch a sequence analysis, um, and yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at fananimresearch. F-A-N-A-N-I-M research you can find us on Facebook I'm going to keep saying that we might exist on Instagram at one point mainly as a reminder to me and to Chris to, to try and sort that out at some if point if you keep saying it it'll, it may happen yeah um, and um, that's us for another week uh, we'll see you next time bye bye